if you have a Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 48. We're going to look at chapter 48, 49, and 50 this morning. H.B. Charles, who pastors in Atlanta, has said, the things you pray about are the things you trust God to handle. The things you neglect to pray about are the things you trust you can handle on your own. Let me read that again. The things you pray about are the things you trust God to handle. The things you neglect to pray about are the things you trust you can handle on your own. That quote has been ringing in my mind for a couple days, and it's disturbing to think through of the things that I just neglect. How, how, how has that been true in your life this week? What is it that you believe you can handle on your own versus those things that you need God's wisdom and perspective and intervention with. We tend to stop praying for things and stop trusting for things when they become normal, when they become routine, like our paycheck. When was the last time you prayed that you would get paid at the end of the month? Or your home, when was the last time you prayed that it would stay safe from a fire? You know, they're praying for that on the other side of the state right now. Like most people here, I... I spend time on the road every day, and undoubtedly, I I take it as normal that we travel on the road in a car at 60 to 65 miles per hour. It's no big deal. With other cars zooming past me, even though I've often passed by accidents and see how quickly normal travel can lead to something horrific, I seldom pray for safety. I take it for granted that I'll get where I'm going without trouble, without consequence. Charles Spurgeon has said, if you cannot trust God for the temporal, how dare you trust him for the eternal? Have we allowed prayer to be supplemental instead of instrumental for our lives? Are we subtly learning to live more and more of our lives without trusting God? How are we living today showing that we trust in a sovereign God? We've been looking ever so briefly these last six weeks, the sovereignty of God in the life of Joseph. And this morning, we end that journey with the last three chapters of the book of Genesis. And the main point that I want you to understand this morning as we consider how we trust God is this. Because God is sovereign and faithful, we can die in hope that, we will, that he will fulfill his promises to us. Let me say that again. Because God is sovereign and faithful, we can die in hope that he will fulfill his promises to us. This is what we find as we come to the end of Jacob's and Joseph's life. And I pray that it'll be an encouragement to us as well this morning. I'm going to begin by praying and encourage you if you'd pray for me and I'll pray for you as we dive into God's word. Father, we thank you that we can gather together this morning as the body of Christ here in Edgewood and Milton. And we ask that you would help your people to understand what your word says. That you would bring clarity, that your spirit would would teach them and cement in them in their hearts of of what your word says and and then apply it to their lives. May they come away different in some way than when they came in this morning, leaving to to serve you and to love you more. And we'll give you all the honor and glory for what you do in this place. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. So first, and this is just, the outline's broken down by the chapters here. First is, by faith, Jacob blesses Joseph's son. So if you've Turn to Genesis. If you don't have a Bible, there's, there should be some provided there in the chairs. It's on page 39. 
And I say this every week, and I really mean it, but if you don't have a Bible open, you're gonna get lost, okay? So open the Bible, whether the one provided or on your digital device, and follow with me as I read here in Genesis chapter 48. If you're using a Bible provided, it's on page 39. And verse one, it says, after this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. And so we took with, his, with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make, you, make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. And as for me, when I came to Paddan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And so the chapter here in 48 begins with, with Jacob. He's, he's dying and Joseph being called to his side. And there Jacob reminds him of the covenant which was given to him by God. But he also informs of his intent to adopt Joseph's two sons as his own seed. And it's his legal language that he uses in verse five. He says, they are mine. He says, and I've had a few questions uh, in this time in Genesis of when we've walked through this book, when Moses is writing and, and, and goes back and forth be, between calling him Jacob and Israel. In my humble opinion, I'm not positive this is true, but I, I believe when he's using the name Israel, it indicates that he's about to speak and act as the bearer of the promise of God so that the reader can recognize, okay, this is coming back to God's promises to his people. It's an indication that, that God is working through Jacob for his covenant people, and Israel is adopting these two boys into the family line. Matthew Henry says they would multiply in a tribe, and each of them would have a distinct lot in, in Canaan, equal with Jacob's own sons. I'll skip down to verse 8 there. When, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they're my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I might bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. And Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. There's a lot of irony, I believe, in this scene here. I can't help but think back to Genesis 27. When Jacob takes advantage of his father's age and poor eyesight to do what? To steal the blessing from Esau. And here now is Jacob, advanced in years, he says, eyes are dim, just like his father's were. And the dying patriarch with, his two, with, with two brothers before him, what will Joseph do now? How, how, how is Joseph? What kind of man is Joseph? Will he take advantage of his father? Do you see the irony here? I'm the only one, or a few of you do, all right, good. Verse 13, and Joseph took them both, Ephraim and his right hand toward Israel, left hand, and Manasseh on his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my father, fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. 
the angel who has redeemed me from all, the, from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it to Ephraim's, from, from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. The, the crossing of hands to bless Ephraim before Manasseh continues another theme prevalent in the book of Genesis. Both Isaac and Jacob were the second sons born of their fathers. Judah, too, was not the firstborn, as we'll see. And the subtle message throughout Genesis is that birth order is not the deciding factor in covenant blessing. And in this, we also see the glorious truth of God's electing grace. It is a reminder for us again this morning that God has the right to not follow the normal flow of expected patterns of social norms. He is sovereign, and so he does things his way. God will accomplish his work his way without man's aid. And we might push back against this, but this is a sovereign choice of a sovereign God. His ways are higher than our ways. And the Bible reveals how God regularly overturned the traditions of his people by bypassing the inheritance rights of the natural heir. And here, once again, we'll, we'll see the leadership in this story handed to Judah. And the doctrine of election is built into the whole fabric of the Bible narrative so that we learn that God is both in control and has authority to act as he pleases in the world. But some verses here that we skipped over, I'm gonna come back to verses 15 and 16. And he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys and in them let my name be carried on. I love these verses. He, he blesses Joseph, but he's also praising God for his work in, in their lives, in his life. And he uses the word angel here. Don't, and it's used of God several times in the patriarchal stories as one who rescues someone from trouble. So don't get tripped up with the word angel there. He's referring to God. What does God do in verse 16? He says, he has redeemed me from all evil. God has always been faithful to him for his whole life, he says. To be redeemed means that something evil has been transcended by a greater act of good. Instead of this destroying him, it caused good to come. And Jacob is preaching to us this morning that his pain wasn't wasted. His pain wasn't wasted. He had learned that God was always present in his life. God never checked out. God never walked away. He didn't forget him. He wasn't gone from the scene. God was working through it all. And Jacob is teaching us because God is sovereign and faithful, we can die in hope that he will fulfill his promises to us. Look at verse 20. And so he blessed them that day saying, by you Israel will pronounce blessing saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Then he put Ephraim before Manasseh and then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. 
Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. God has been faithful to Jacob, and we see this through this chapter. Do you see the faithfulness of God in your own life? A few of you have already come up to me this morning and shared God's faithfulness. I love hearing that. Have you considered this week, have you considered this morning even, in the, in the midst of getting yourself ready for church, have you paused to consider how God has been faithful to you? Can you recount all the ways that God has been faithful to you this last week? Whether you're nine years old or 90, we should, Christian, be able to recount all the ways that God has been faithful to us. And, and furthermore, for us as dysfunctional parents, the faithfulness of God is especially precious. Amen? I mean, parents, can you echo that this morning? Do you feel like you're dysfunctional in some way? I do. Just sit in our car on the way to church and you'll find out. We sin daily against our children by loving them too little or loving them too much. Sometimes we shelter our kids too much or sometimes we expose them too much. Instead of consistently speaking the gospel to our kids, we impose the laws of our kingdom on them. The kingdom of ourselves, of of our wants, our needs, that they need to abide by so that we can have a peaceful home. And we we protect them from suffering while they live in our homes, thinking that somehow we'll, we'll protect them from suffering when they leave our homes. And our own lives are inconsistent examples of holiness at best. And much of the time, instead of passing on the fear of the Lord to our kids, we, we hand down the oppressive idols that we worship as parents. And what hope is there for us as parents? The faithfulness of God. That's our hope. Because God is sovereign and faithful, we can live in hope that he will fulfill his promises to us. God is their only hope. And as parents, we need to strive. This is hard to to keep moving our kids' hands from our hands and transferring their hands to the Father, to Almighty God, who's able to keep them and supply for them. I don't know if you need to hear this, but I needed to this morning, that God loves our children far more than we do. And he loves them better. He loves them perfectly. So we need to trust him. Let's commit as parents to teach our kids more about our faithful God. Let's commit to spend time this week rehearsing, recounting with our kids how he's been faithful to us. Going back again of what what God has done, how he's been faithful. May they hear it from us. And spending our moments of energy instructing them in the sovereignty and the faithfulness of our God. May we teach them about this. This is why it's so important for you, Christian, to read your Bible, especially the Old Testament in particular, because you see it, God's faithfulness to his people reminds us that we can trust him in the midst of our difficulties. God is not in the business of abandonment. He redeems and transforms and unites and protects his people. He is indeed our good shepherd. God has been faithful 
to us, and he will continue to be faithful to his children. We can trust him. That's chapter 48. Let's look at chapter 49. Chapter 49, following this last one, can seem harsh and unloving, but it's the truth. These blessings show the ongoing reality and consequences of sin. Verse one, then Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went to your father's bed, then you defiled it, and he went up to my couch. So after he blesses Ephraim and Manasseh, Jacob's words now turn to his own sons, and Reuben is first off the bat. He's the firstborn, and they're hard, but they're true. Things seem to go well. Perhaps he was going to be chief, but then you come to verse 4. Reuben was guilty of the form of incest. He was full of lust and guilt and weakness. He's, he says here he was solid as water. He lacked courage and character or conviction. Sin has its consequences in our lives, and, and Reuben was seeing the result of it. Circumstances in his own character seemed continually to conspire against him, and it doesn't get any better with the next two brothers. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. These two brothers are the ones who exacted revenge against the Shechemites in Genesis 34. And that's why Jacob says their weapons of violence are their swords. And his words to them end up being more harsh than those spoken to the oldest. These two were joined together in their sin, and so their tribes that came from them would together be scattered in their judgment. And the bedroom now that they've been summoned to had now become a courtroom for judgment. Let's skip Joseph for a moment here. Let's skip down to verse 13. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and become a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that the, his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall, shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful thorns. Benjamin, verse 27, verse 27, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey, and in the evening dividing the spoil. This is Hebrew poetry, and I'm not going to camp here this morning, okay? Because each of these blessings are also a, a picture of their name, of their future, it's not always clear for the student to understand what's, what's saying, but it's, it, it's him prophesying what's going to happen with these families. Benjamin, the baby of the family, is a ravenous wolf, never a positive picture in Scripture. Morning and evening, he carves up the spoil for those weaker than himself. Dan is a serpent along the way. Asher produces rich delicacies fit for royalty. And these blessings show us the complexity of sin. Sin can be socially, you know, reprehensible 
as when it involves sleeping with someone who isn't your spouse that we see in Reuben, or the two brothers who murdered an entire city. But sin can also be applauded as pursuing a good living by providing rich delicacies for foreigners at the cost of your spiritual distinctiveness. But what this passage communicates more than anything is that sin often has multi-generational consequences. And the same can be true of our sin. There are some sins that are so inflammatory and external that we can see the effects past us. But more common than not is those internal sins that are not so easily identified or confessed. Pride, self-love can be learned so easily in the home. Ease and comfort. Gossip and harshness with our speech. These sins can be passed on one generation to the next, learned and then displayed in the kids. Worry, anxiety, fear of the unknown instead of trust in an all-knowing God. Do we realize that our sins impact others, especially the people who live most closely to us? Although sin can sometimes have multi-generational consequences, that's not always the end. Levi's tribe becomes priest. God uses them. Most clearly, though, in this chapter, we see Judah. Look back to verse 8. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. The blessing that Jacob gives to Judah is first and foremost the evidence of a changed life for Jacob. Remember, who was Jacob's favorite? It was not a child from the mother of Leah, not the firstborn, but it was a child from Rachel. He always preferred Joseph, and his choice was based solely on his feelings. Now we see God working on Jacob. Judah's preeminence is not a result of his performance either. Remember, who sold Joseph into slavery? It was Judah. Who did the wickedness that we skipped over in chapter 38 to Tamar? It was Judah. So this is not about how great Judah is, but how great his God is in redeeming him. These words are full of praise also. He, plays, he often plays on words with Judah's name, which means to praise. He is the son of promise. He is the first among his brothers. He is the, the one to whom they will bow. Judah is essentially taking his father's place, and, and Judah's line will produce a great king by the name of David. And he and his line will rule the nation of Israel and receive the praise from other tribes. And however great this king David is, 
will even have a greater son who will be the king of kings. This king will be worthy in every way of our praise of him. He will come to redeem his people from their sins. But Judah here is also pictured as powerful. The description is given of a lion, which shows the tremendous power that will come from this line. The picture of a lion is the most enduring image of Judah in the balance of redemptive, redemptive history. This image is carried through to the time of the judges, then to the reign of King David, and ultimately fulfilled in the victorious reign of the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ. Judah is a powerful testimony of what God does in our wretched lives when he redeems us. He takes the worst situations in all of us, all of us who are called by his name, and then he works them for our good and for God's glory. I hope you can see that being included in God's special people this morning, being saved, is nothing that you can do yourself. If you know yourself well, you realize that only God can save you. If you were left up to yourself, you would be as immoral and wicked as Judah, as deceptive as Jacob was, as faithless as them all. And we can no more save ourselves than Joseph could have climbed out of that pit. If we are God's people, it's because God has called us out of our own terrible sins and our messed up situations and our dysfunctional families. And praise God that he does. When's the last time you spent praising God for salvation? Have you gone all week? Praise God that he doesn't let his people's sins finally rule them. Praise God that he has provided a sacrifice for his people's sins that we could have never provided for ourselves. Praise God. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, if you were to die in your own sins, God's justice would not be infinitely satisfied because your sins have offended an infinitely holy and eternal God and you deserve more than a death that just passes by in a few moments. Praise God that he has sacrificed his sinless son, Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross to bear the sins of all those who would turn from their sins and trust in him. And I pray that you have known that forgiveness and amazing blessing that God gives. And if so, then our lives should be full of conversation with others. Full of conversation of the glorious good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We should never grow tired of talking about the gospel. It should never become commonplace. If you are one of the redeemed, we should enjoy talking about what God has done for us. Let's keep going. Verse 28. All these, we're just get down to the end. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessings suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephraim, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of uh, Mechapelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephraim, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. There they buried, there they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave 
that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. As Jacob comes to the end of the blessings to his boys, he also comes to the end of his time on earth. And he reiterates his wish to be buried with the patriarchs in his land of Canaan. And the point is, he doesn't want to stay in Egypt. This is essentially his last will and testament. And this leads us to chapter 50. Verse 1, then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. In this, you can see that the Egyptians had great respect for Joseph and all that he had done for the, for the people. And they show that respect now to Joseph's father, Jacob, as he passes. And they go then and take Jacob back to the promised land and promise to return. And you can read that for yourself, verses 4 through 14. But we're going to skip down to verse 15 this morning. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave his command before he died, and he didn't, just so you know. Verse 17, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. There's a few things I want to point out here because this is really the climax of the entire story of Joseph. This is where we see most clearly the theology of Joseph on display in verses 19 through 21. So I want to point out a few things. It's not in your, your, uh, your outline, but you can jot them down if you want. First, Joseph avoids putting himself in the place of God. He says, do not fear for am I in the place of God. Joseph is tapping into one of the greatest difficulties in our life. Putting ourselves in the place of God has to be the heart of so many of our own problems. How? What's your standard for living? How do you know how to live? Is it God's word? Or is it your, your thoughts? If you decide what is right and wrong for yourself instead of God's word, then you have placed yourself in the place of God. Another way that you put yourself in the place of God is when you let people look to you to meet their deepest needs. One of my kids shared a couple weeks ago in one of their classes had learned about Naaman, and we were chatting about it briefly as a family, but I was reminded of that story. Do you know it? The, the Syrian general who has leprosy and is told there's power in Israel for healing, and so Naaman, the Syrian general, loads up his wagons filled with gold and silver, and he goes to the king of Israel, and he says, I would like my healing, please paraphrasing. And the king of Israel tears his clothes and says, am I God to kill and to make alive? So you see what he's doing here? He's right, you know, the king. 
he rips his clothes and he says, there's a lot of things I can do, but the deepest needs that you have can only be met in God. So don't come to me for only what God can do. Don't ask me to do what only God can do. And this happens in life. It can happen very easily in the pastorate when people have issues and they know I'm here to help, to pray and encourage, but people can subtly believe that I'm your savior and I'm a horrible savior. I'm not called to be your savior. My job is to point to the savior. But more frequently, it happens in your relationships. Usually the marriage relationship. You get married thinking that finally you will feel complete. And you put that pressure on your spouse to become all those things for you. And they can't. Friends, they're not built for it. They aren't God. They can't fully satisfy you. And just so you know, spouses make horrible saviors also. They can't save you. The same for kids. We long for kids. And we can so easily believe that it's all bound up in our kids, but they're horrible saviors also. But here, really, Joseph seems to be saying for us that he can't take the place of God, really meaning that he can't hold a grudge. The brothers come before him and ask for forgiveness, and he says, of course you're forgiven. Am I in the place of God? And and this is important because he's saying that every human being has the capacity to keep a grudge. to hold people hostage in anger for the wrong that they've done. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're now thinking of the people that you're holding a grudge towards. Good. Pray that God will work in your heart. Because when you do that, you're literally sitting in God's seat. This is why God says in Romans 12, Vengeance is mine. Jeff's translation, he's saying, get out of my seat. God's saying, you don't belong in my chair. That's my seat. Only God has the right to sit in final judgment of a person. We have no right All of us are sinners who deserve our own judgment. Only God has the knowledge to sit in final judgment. And if we refuse to forgive in our hearts towards others, if you feed your anger, if you harbor bitterness, you will destroy yourself. And when someone wrongs you and you don't forgive, ironically, you're becoming evil yourself. That evil that moved the the perpetrator to do wrong is coming into you. And you're becoming like them. And it's a destructive position to be in. 
But the fastest way, the fastest way to become like Satan is to try to sit in God's seat. We see that in the scriptures, right? And the fastest way to become like God is to refuse to sit in God's seat. So friends, we need to avoid sitting in the place of God. Let God be God. But there's a second lesson that we can learn from Joseph here, and it's taking God's view of things. If you're out hiking and you get lost and you're in the valley, it won't really help to get out. Really, you need to find your way home. and You need to literally climb to higher ground to see from the top. And so when trouble comes, when you're wrong, how do you look at those sufferings? Do you look at them from the human in the valley or from the top? Do you take God's view of things? See, Joseph says for us very clearly this morning, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And, and down in the valley, all you see is the evil that was done. You can't see anything else unless you take a look from the top. See, Joseph isn't an optimist or a pessimist. He's a biblicist. Life is hard. Life is filled with pain, but God is still good. And if you live in the valley, you either think life is good, so God is good, or life is bad, so God is bad. You tend to think one or the other, but that's not the message of the Bible. God works no matter if the situation is good or bad. They meant it for evil. He's not removing any of the responsibility from the brothers. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He's he's saying, they could not mess up my life. God was in control. This is why Joseph could forgive them. He knows that his, his life in the hands of God, not them. They meant it for evil, and it hurt, and it was painful, but ultimately it couldn't finish him. They could hardly touch him because God was in control of his life, and God meant it for good. That means there is no plan B for your life. It's all plan A. God, the, these and people in our life that seek to hurt us and seek evil against us can't mess it up because God is sovereign and faithful. And we can live in hope that he will fulfill his promises to us. The last thing, the third thing I want you to mention and, and see in this verse was verse 21 is love for his brothers. It says, do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And what we see here, friends, is he's loving his enemies. He knows his brothers. And why is he loving them, though? What is in it for himself? And how can he do it? That's probably the most pressing question that you have. How can Joseph do this for them? They threw him into a pit. They turned their back on him when he cried out for help. I'm sure Joseph remembers all of the the atrocities done to him. He knows it was evil. So how can he love them now? Because he knows that God is always working for good and that no one can ultimately finish him. But he also knows that God loves him and he doesn't deserve it. He, He knows something of the grace of God, the unmerited favor, the undeserved Love from the Father. 
And it's only when you see that you didn't save yourself through your own good works, through your own good behavior, but only through the pure grace of God that you can humbly love others well. And when we refuse to forgive in our hearts, we step into dangerous waters. We put ourselves in the place of God thinking that we, we, we know vengeance better than God does. And we also make the wrath of God insufficient. We make the wrath of God insufficient because we're convinced that our wrath is more terrible than his. Really? Our wrath? We become so arrogant. And so what we need to learn from Joseph here is that we, we don't sit in the place of God. We stay out of God's seat. And we strive to continue to pray and, and help and ask God to help us to see things from his vantage point. And we learn to love our enemies. Friends, all of our, all of our life is plan A. There is no plan B. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And how does the book end? Look at verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of, of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Period. That's how the book ends. Genesis, if you remember, you should, begins with such power. We didn't cover that, but in the beginning, God created such hope. Do you notice how the book ends? They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Satan looks like he's won. His rebellion against God's creation appears to have succeeded. Death has touched all of Adam's sons and the last hero in Genesis. Joseph now fades away. The book begins with creation and ends with a coffin. And look where that coffin is in Egypt, the mightiest nation on earth. God knew what he was doing. God knew where to plant his seeds for his purposes. He knew exactly where to leave Joseph's coffin. And as you discover, as you read through the book of Exodus, the stage was set for God's great drama of redemption and resurrection, where he would show the whole world that no nation on earth, not even the greatest nation, not even the superpower nation, can stop his plans. And so he leaves Joseph's coffin in Egypt. Genesis, the book of beginnings, ends. But God's business is not finished. Not nearly finished. Do you think you've experienced something in your life that has finished God's plan for you? Some circumstances that are too horrible, 
some situation that's too messed up, some sin that is just too serious, well, then you haven't carefully considered the creator of the world or Joseph's coffin. You think the story's over? Friends, you need to turn the page and read Exodus tomorrow. The story's not over. God wasn't finished then. And praise God, he's not finished today. Because God is sovereign and faithful. We can live and die in hope that he will fulfill his promises to us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. What a blessing it is to have it. To have it in our own language. And we can understand and read to have multiple copies. I know I have multiple copies. Most of us do. Help us not to take it for granted. Help us to not set it aside this week, but help us to, to dive into your word, to read it. And I pray that you would help us to understand it and to apply it. God, we thank you for the life of Joseph, for the ups and downs that we've read in the last six weeks of what you've done in Joseph's life. Thank you that you are faithful. Thank you, God, that you're sovereign. And we thank you this morning that we can trust in you. Help us to do that, God. In the midst of the, the pain and troubles that we experience in our lives, help us to not forget about you. Help us to trust in you in every, every turn, every step. Help us to, to recount your goodness to us and to be eager to share that with others who desperately need to hear it. God, we thank you and we praise you for your faithfulness. May we trust in you as we leave this place. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.